Brothers and sisters, we open the Word of God in the New Testament. We read together from Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, the verses 19 through chapter 4, verse 8. We will also include in our reading Belgian Confession, Article 22. But first we listen to the Word of God in Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, from verse 19 through chapter 4, verse 8. This is the Word of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's our scripture passage. Let's now turn to the Belgian Confession, Article 22. You find it on page 507 in the back of our Book of Praise. 
page 507. Article 22, where we echo the Word of God regarding our justification through faith in Christ. We believe that in order that we may obtain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith. This faith embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, makes him our own and does not seek anything besides him. For it must necessarily follow either that all we need for our salvation is not in Jesus Christ, or if it is all in him, that one who has Jesus Christ through faith has complete salvation. It is therefore a terrible blasphemy to assert that Christ is not sufficient but that something else is needed besides him. For the conclusion would then be that Christ is only half a savior. Therefore, we rightly say with Paul that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Meanwhile, strictly speaking, we do not mean that faith as such justifies us, for faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ our righteousness. He imputes to us all his merits and as many holy works as he has done for us and in our place. Therefore, Jesus Christ is our righteousness and faith is the instrument that keeps us with him in the communion of all his benefits. When those benefits have become ours, they are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins. That's Article 22. Let us respond now together by singing Hymn 37, the stanzas 1 and 2. Hymn 37, Hallelujah, praise be the Son, for His redeeming work is done. From sin He has untied us. Hymn 37, the stanzas 1 and 2, on page 420 in the back of your Book of Praise. After the sermon, we will be singing together from Psalm 32 to stanzas 1 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That, brothers and sisters, was our doxology at the conclusion of our Lord's Supper last week. And forget not all his benefits. In a different context, it is this afternoon again, the conclusion. What does it help you now that you believe all this? What's the benefit of believing God's providence, of your faith in Christ's death and resurrection? What comfort gives you his coming to judge the living and the dead, the life everlasting? What is the meaning of Article 1, the value of Article 2, 
Twelve times you have said, I believe to these articles of the Christian faith, to these promises of the Word of God. Taking this all together, what does it help you now? What's the benefit for you in this life and in the life to come? You need to know the answer to this question so that you won't forget the benefits, but praise God for them. You need to know them so that you can work with them in your faith. That's not just for yourself, beloved, but also for your neighbor, your colleague, or your acquaintances, that you need to know the answer to that question. They'll ask you too, at some point, what is that? Your faith. What does it help you now that you believe? That you go to church? Today, people may not be regular churchgoers or believers themselves, but the interest in faith and religion, in church and spirituality, is there again. They're interested but don't understand much of it. What benefit does it give to you? What's the use? Or how does it help you? Others may find it nice for you, but don't really see the need for themselves. They may believe in a loving God, but they are not concerned about His judgment seat. They're not so much focused on them giving account to God, but more interested in God giving account to them for all the misery in the world. So the questions multiply themselves, yet they all can be summarized in the question of our Lord's Day, what does it help you now that you believe all this? Then we confess God grants us righteousness and everlasting life in Christ, our first point, by grace, our second point, through faith, our third point. So I summarize the message of this afternoon as follows. God grants us righteousness and everlasting life in Christ, by grace, through faith. So first of all, in Christ. You will have understood already I'm sure, brothers and sisters, that this question in Lord's Day 23 is very, very important. It's, an, it's important for you and for others close to you. What does it help you? Or what, what is it value? It's benefit for you. That question can be taken positively and negatively. Some who encounter trouble, misery, but who don't live by God's promises and faithfulness may ask the question in disappointment, what help does it give? If only they would go to God, cry to God, and rely on His promises, the light of the gospel, the power of faith, would go up in their life. If they remain stuck in their disappointment, however, they will end up reacting. What's the use? Doesn't help anyway. And they will turn away from God. Of course, you may ask the question, even ask it in despair, if you will, 
Yet then it should not be done in the way of, I'll have to see the use, I'll have to experience the benefit first before I believe. No, ask the question and listen to the Lord for the answer. Seek his explanation in his words rather than going by your experience of his way. You'll see then that he is there for you in good days and bad, that he is faithful in trouble and sorrow as well as in gladness and joy. You know, in these postmodern times, beloved, sooner or later, you'll hear the question asked in this way. What does it do for you? How does it affect you when you believe all this? And the question usually is answered in the sense of, ah, it doesn't do much to me. Oh, sure, they might be jealous of those people whom it affects a lot, whose faith gives them a radiance, an expression of assurance and trust. At least such people experience their faith. They themselves, however, can't do much with it. Well, again, there is this experience of joy and comfort and confidence in faith, and the Holy Spirit does work the joy of faith indeed, because you know and see that the Lord is good. But that's not the way the Heidelberg Catechism wants to deal with its question, though. How our faith in all the promises of the gospel help us, first of all, is a matter of faith in God's Word rather than of an experience. In fact, the Bible itself shows us many an example of a believer who cries to God, whose tears are shed before God, and who go about their way bowed down and troubled due to their circumstances, due to the tribulations, the temptations of the devil, or what have you. We confess that too. The devil, the world, and our own flesh continue to oppress us, so that the question comes up, where is God? Our faith, beloved, is not a recipe for success for a profitable career. It's not a prescription for a sick body or medication for a weak or ill mind. Oh, sure, there are people who still maintain that depression is proof of a weak faith, but that's just because they don't know anything about psychology, neither do they know the Scriptures. Let's remember that just in case we make those people's burden even heavier by such misunderstanding. Your faith cannot heal your flu or your broken leg. Neither does it help you overcome psychological problems. Your faith will help you a lot, though, in bearing with the brokenness of life. No, Lord's Day 23 is not the Lord's Day of the successful Christian. For as the Lord Jesus himself prepared his disciples and us, saying, in the world you will have trouble. 
So the answer to the question of how your faith helps you does not direct your faith at the circumstances and difficulties in this life. It directs your attention on your relationship with God. It directs your attention to God's judgment seat in heaven. Just as important it was in Lord's Day 22, brothers and sisters, to see the connection of Lord's Day 22 with the only comfort of Lord's Day 1, so it is important today to see the connection of Lord's Day 23 with Lord's Day 2. In order to live in the joy of the only comfort, we need to know our sins and misery in order to know how our faith helps us, we need to put ourselves before God in the awareness of our sins and misery. Remember what God requires from us. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and with all our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Can you keep all this perfectly, we asked, as God may expect from a creature he created good and in his own image? And the answer was no, not at all. I am inclined to hate God and the neighbor. Consequently, the, the answer highlighted God's justice, his wrath over sin, in the meantime, however, we learned from God's Word and we confessed accordingly that God the Father has come to us in His love in Jesus Christ. To all the promises of the gospel that are contained in the glorious name of our triune God, we have said, I believe, even twelve times. Indeed, we can summarize these promises in various ways as we have seen, but then ultimately it all comes down to this one confession, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have it all in Him. Hence, Lord's Day 23, brothers and sisters, starts its answer with that exclamation almost, in Christ I am right with God. In Christ, I am righteous before God, an heir to life everlasting. Believing that is being in Christ. He is divine and we are the branches, he has said. And when my words are in you, I will remain in you and you in me. He is the word and we are baptized into him. He is the head of the body, and we are members in him. He is the bridegroom, and we are united with him as his bride. We are renewed in Christ, clothed with him, etc., etc. So why do I believe? Why do I go to church? And why do I listen to his word? To see Christ. To hear Christ, to belong to Christ, to be renewed in Christ. Why that is so important? Well, 
Now put yourself before God's judgment seat again and stand there in Christ. And you know what happens? God declares you righteous in Christ. God acquits you from all your sins and justifies you. Ah, that's what happens. He does not only forgive you all your sins, but he also declares you innocent, righteous, the way you were before the fall into sin. God restores you in your original position before him. Just like the prodigal son, you are not just forgiven, but you also receive new clothes, a ring, a sign of being father's child, and a feast for someone who is without spot or blemish. Yes, my brother and my sister, God gives you even more. He makes you heir to life everlasting. When you believe all that's summarized in the 12 articles of our Christian faith, the future opens up for you. That's not a question, but a fact. You are God's, and God is for you eternally. As the Lord Jesus puts it in John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, so that everlasting life starts already in this life, here and now. You are not only in God's testament, and He will look at it at that time when time comes, but since you are united in Christ with God, you may live with Him today already. As we confess the Lord's Day 22, now already you may feel in your heart the beginning of eternal joy. Why? Still a matter of feeling? Yeah, indeed. Your feeling is as much involved as your hearing and seeing and your experience of His goodness and mercy and grace. Indeed, you are granted righteousness and life everlasting. That is, you are placed in the glorious liberty of the children of God in Christ. You share in His righteousness, His holiness, and God won't see your sins and guilt no more. How come? Well, God sees us in Christ by grace. Our second point, by grace. Yes, as I already said, brothers and sisters, we have to remember Lord's Day 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, etc. We have to know our sins and misery and know them well. Why else would we seek our life outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ? It's because we know our sins and misery so well that our conscience accuses us too much. For we recognize our sins and sinful nature, and we realize that we are sinners still and inclined to sin. We know that. We confess it. We, that is we as believers in Christ, united in Christ, we as believers confess, although my conscience accuses me, 
Just as the prodigal son came to his father and confessed his own unworthiness to be his son. So when we speak here about our conscience, we are not speaking about some general sense of guilt or a common admission of sinfulness. No, we are admitting to our guilt, and we acknowledge our many sins. I, as believer, who confess all that God has revealed in His Word, and who has summarized that confession in the Apostles' Creed, I have such a conscience on the basis of what I have learned from God's Word. That's what the word conscience says. Conscience. We know together. God and I know my sin, my misery. I've looked into the mirror of the law and heard the requirement of the law, so now I confess it. I know what I deserve, and I feel it in my heart very seriously how much I have sinned, and how I have to admit it, honestly and frankly, how inclined I still am to sinful thoughts and words and deeds. That's how it is, right, beloved? We do tremble in the sight of God because of our many sins, don't we? We are aware of our many sins, aren't we? We have not fallen victim yet to the general trend and reality uh, that people's sense of sin is superficial and that they are not too concerned about their guilt. Asking for the forgiveness of our sins has not become commonplace, has it? Or an assumption that that's what we are supposed to say in order to obtain our daily portion of forgiveness. Every Sunday, we hear the law, and we are reminded of what God requires of us. Well, how central is God in our life? How deep is your love for God? And how truly do you love Him above all and your neighbor as yourself? Or am I running just as hard as the unbelievers after my own things? My work, my position, my money, my pleasures, so that I can hardly concentrate at night to pray my prayers of the confession of guilt and my petition for the forgiveness of my sins. But that cannot be right, can it? Together, we read Paul's epistle to the Romans, beloved. And we were reminded that we cannot take our sins lightly because God does not take them lightly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God justifies the guilty he didn't just do that to be nice or so. God hates all evil. And you will have to admit as well how awful your sins and sinfulness are. You will have to acknowledge your sins and confess that you deserve God's eternal wrath. Not as a cliché, 
but in full awareness of your accursedness, the sense that you have when you prepared yourself for the celebration of the Lord's Supper last week, your accursedness. Yes, then we come to God, not to obtain what we feel is rightly, rightfully ours, but we flee to Him and cry for salvation, for forgiveness. Yes, for His grace in Jesus Christ. Yes, as we confess in Lord's Day 23, out of mere grace, God imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. God imputes this to me, puts that on my account as satisfaction, as atonement for my sins by grace. We have to learn to live by grace, beloved. And we have to let go of our own merits. The Heidelberg Catechism stresses as well. This heart. We think so highly of ourselves and of our works and of our contributions to the work in God's kingdom. Yes, even of our believing the way we live, our faith. But no, we don't deserve anything but wrath, and we only receive everything in Christ by grace and through faith. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives His grace to those who ask Him for it through faith. Our third point. Yes, let's also take question and answer 61 seriously, brothers and sisters, which warns us not to become proud of our faith in the sense of, look at us. We are sure a lot better than the rest, for we believe, and they are stuck in their unbelief. No. God gives grace. God also works faith by His Word and Holy Spirit. And if He didn't do it, we would be just as stuck in our unbelief, just as proud, and just as stubborn. You know, it's been an inclination throughout the history of the church, a trap, for instance, into which the remonstrants fell, who say, Instead of our ability to keep the law perfectly, God lowered the bar and requires only that we believe in Him. That may be of lesser value than the perfect love He required initially, yet it's good enough for God to accept us. That was and is their teaching. And even though we may not look at our faith that way, we are inclined as well to see our faith as our merit, our action, or our contribution to our salvation. Indeed, beloved, God requires faith, and without faith there is no acquittal. Yet that's not a matter of lowering the bar. God still requires perfect love, which we have by sharing in Christ's perfect love by faith. But it is a matter of finding our whole life and salvation in Christ. Christ is the contents of our faith. 
We embrace Christ and all his merits by faith. Belgian Confession, Article 22. All that we have in Christ restores our relationship with God. Yes, that and only that. How we make that our own? By our hands of faith, empty hands. By faith, you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to you. Through faith in him, you are righteous and share in the life everlasting. Amen.